0: Welcome to a brand new episode of Seize the Moment Podcast. Today we have a very special guest. Today we have on David Sampson. He's an Associate Professor of Evolutionary Anthropology at the University of Toronto and Director of the Sleep and Human Evolution Lab show. David's research has been uh, internationally profiled in venues such as the BBC, Time, the New York Times, the Smithsonian, CBC, NPR, and National Geographic. He's also part of the Mental Immunity Project and Circe, which aim to advance and apply the science of mental immunity to inoculate minds against misinformation. And his new book, available now, is called Our Tribal Future, How to, tri- how to Channel Our Foundational Human Instincts into a Force for Good. Welcome, David.
1: It's a pleasure to have you on. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here, guys. Uh, the Seize the Moment podcast. What a beautiful name for a podcast. I love it
2: i love it thank you so much and by the way uh, just before we begin it was super random too so if you see it alan has uh we have the, on the background like it's a bunch of just words and stuff so yeah. literally we're sitting here one day and we're like oh what should our title <laughs> our t- podcast title be oh <laughs> seize
0: the moment i was like we should make it to-. it was literally his idea yeah he's looking at that poster and he's like oh yeah wait what should it be? and then all of a sudden he sees it Boom. behind my head he's like oh yeah. that
1: that is seriously that's the power of cues in ones in local environment to shape cognition. And yeah. uh, it's, which may be something we talk about today with tribal signaling. So yeah, yeah it'll, it'll be fun.
2: Oh, we're definitely going to get into yeah. that. Okay. So I'm going to start off with a passage from David's book. Mm. David wrote tribalism is governed by a force so motivationally powerful that it predicts more of your behavior than your race class, nationality, or religion. The formal analysis of this incredible phenomenon has only just begun, but the emerging science reveals that these factors are mere subjugates to our primal instinct to be a factor of a tribe. This quote-unquote tribal drive is an ancient adaptation that has been a prerequisite for survival for 99.9% of our species' evolutionary history. It is a critical piece of cognitive machinery honed by millions of years of evolution that gave us the ability to navigate both cooperatively and competitively increasingly Complex social landscapes, but now that our species spans millions, billions across the globe, does this adaptation continue to serve us, or is it a mismatch to its environment? In other words, what happens when humans become either tribal-less or destructively consumed by tribalism? So, I actually want to start off with what people are going to probably think of as a very silly example, but I think it's a very good one. Mm. So, if if uh, David, you follow professional wrestling at all? I don't know if you ever have. Or-
1: I have. I have. Not only do I. <laughs> follow it i in high school i've been to a couple live events uh i grew up it went, we moved from canada to indiana when uh-huh. i was 12 and uh to properly tribal signal my coalitionary alliances you if you were a, a dude growing up in Indiana, you needed to watch professional wrestling. So yes, I have <laughs> been to a couple live events. Okay, I love that. So, so this yeah. is going
2: to be my example. So yeah. in in the history of professional wrestling, and especially now, the most popular pl- storyline is one called the Bloodline. And so mm. the reason, yeah, so and the reason why the Bloodline storyline has been so popular is because it's a storyline about a family tribe. And so in the Polynesian community, I mean, they're very tribal in the sense that um I don't want to, because I was going to say primitive, but it's not the right term. They're very tribal mm. in the sense of they're very different. They're very very tight knit communities. And so the bloodline storyline has been super popular in the sense that you have like a tribal chief who's obviously the Roman reigns character. Then you have the usos who are kind of like the backups. And then you have a uh, sort of the wise man and Paul Heyman. So what's so interesting is that if you're looking at just popularity and the p- most popular wrestling storylines in the history of just wrestling, just history and wrestling storylines, what you're seeing is that for the most part, it's not successful individuals that become popular. It's actually successful, what they call stables and uh, wrestling terminology. Mm-hmm. So successful fact. Actions and groups but obviously now going into the bloodline the bloodline has become the most successful what I mean argued, arg- arguably and I would say pretty if you look at the data just based on the numerics of like uh, how much people watch uh, the st- how much uh, their clothes and merch sells it's the bloodline right so the bloodline storyline has been the most famous and the most popular one and it seems to be because of the tribal aspect of it again the tribal chief and the kind of the minions that sort of follow him around mm-hmm. so yeah so can we get into that so why is it that you think that sort of not only just in wrestling the tribal is so popular, but just in general, like why do we sort of why are we geared toward um aspects of movies, television, uh, in this case, obviously professional wrestling that are actually you know about tribes and how tribes work and how hierarchies work? Chimp Empire, another example on Netflix, yeah. super popular show, all about tribalism and the tribe drive,
1: yeah, right? And the tribe, man, you guys are giving me a lot of unpack there with the with the opening question, just as an interesting aside, right up the bat. Um, Roman Reigns so one of my best friends in fact part of our closest in group uh, one of my best friends is actually training Roman Reigns like actual real life tribe his group wow (laughs) Uh, he does he does Viking reenactment and is actually sword training him because my best friend's a a highly qualified sword instructor Mm -hmm. and not only that in a couple months I think at the end of September we're going to one of these events together so and, and Roman's reading the book, Our Tribal Future. So what?
2: Is, That's I, very cool. That yeah, is very cool.
1: It is pretty cool. And uh, we he's already like two-thirds of the way through the book. And uh, we're going to talk about how we can leverage the science of it so he can improve his own kith and kin and, and tribal group. Anyway, I just—I was blown away wow. by the fact that well, wow ended up with that particular right Yeah. So, all right. I think the way to approach this is just to start with well, maybe let's just go ahead and define what a tribe is because you used it in several different contexts there and they all are intuitively tapping into the source of what a tribe is. But I think that for us to be scientists about this, we need an operationalized definition. And so my operationalized definition of a tribe is a, it's an intersubjective belief network that signals coalitionary alliance for the function of bootstrapping trust amongst strangers. Now that's a that's a boatload, right? So basically, what it is, if you were to boil it down anecdotally or, or more simply, it would be if you project authentic signals that you're part of a team and they're received, you gain all the rights and privileges of that team. It's almost kind of like a a secret society, if you will, hmm. except in plain sight, right? And all the signals that we that we are constantly emitting and receiving are part of the complex algorithm that under the hood, we either are more apt to cooperate with somebody, a, a stranger we've never met, or um, to, to not cooperate. And so literally, this is so strong a drive that our tribal identity alters our view of the world, like the way we perceive the world. In fact, every idea we're going to discuss now will in large part be accepted or denied based on our pre-existing identities and their associated beliefs. Like that's how, that's how powerful this thing is. Um, maybe one way to get at this and to disentangle this because, as you noted through reading the opening uh, part of the book there, we're talking about evolutionary history. We're talking about deep time. And for us to wrap our heads around how much actual time we're talking about, that this that this trait has evolved, I think it'd be useful to bring in a, a metaphor or an analogy. We're going to use a movie. So we're going to call it the human movie. OK, mm. the average movie is about 100 minutes long. So we're going to boil down 1.8 million years of human evolution into a 100-minute movie, okay? Minute one, something really cool happens. The opening is pretty exciting. You have Australopithecines who were our basically very chimp-like forebears, and they evolved in a gallery forest. Then we split off and um, these Australopithecines were basically chimpanzees from the waist up and they could walk bipedally Um, waist down. Mm -hmm. By the time we get to the ground, something really unique happens. We double down on a use social strategy. We start living in camps. So in minute one, something really important happens. We start living in camps. The camps are basically 20 to 30 adults. And you're sharing the objectives of survival and reproduction with 20 to 30 different people. Okay. There is no such like there's no nuclear family. Like the smallest unit is the camp. So, in minute one, that's how we figure out how to stay safe on the ground and start exploiting the savannah resources in East Africa 1.8 million years ago. Minute one of the movie. Now it gets pretty boring after that innovation. You'd need a David Attenborough to like spice up the narration because for 84 minutes, it's kind of the same. We see an increase in brain size a little bit, but at 84 minutes, then something really interesting happens. You start seeing human groups transcending their home ranges, meaning you start seeing in the paleoanthropological record bits and pieces of identifying group identifying signatures like ochre on a specific kind of obsidian tool that can only be found in one location, but you're finding them really far away from their source source location. And so what this indicates is that if we're trying to figure out when this tribe drive was getting bootstrapped into the human mind, it would probably be around minute 84, which is about 300,000 years ago. Incidentally, guys, this is when Homo sapiens evolve onto the scene. And I don't think this is by chance. I think the fact that Homo sapiens are a symbolically driven species, we're obsessed with symbols and our perception of symbols is totally innate. And I think these two things, Uh, happened at the same time, because the value proposition here is once you start signaling on the group of a larger and larger scale, you're saying when you emit those signals, the value prop there is that if you mess with me, you're not just messing with me, you're messing with everyone in this collective. And that meant enhanced survival reproduction and out, out competing other groups that didn't have this signal. Mm-hmm. so that's that's minute 84 and then things kind of slowly progress they they build and build and build with one minute left in the movie the human movie it becomes a radical science fiction film like out of it it's it gets insane <laughs> so with one minute left you have our species out competing neanderthals we become the sole inheritors of the earth compared to every other homin. Mm-hmm. There have been other human-like things running around all over the world for, that, for the entirety of the story. We become the dominant one. We out-compete Neanderthals. And I think it's because we had the capacity to project coalitionary alliances and to leverage the tribe drive and symbols in a way that Neanderthals and other hominids didn't. So that's one minute left. With 30 seconds left, we become sedentary, right? We start basically domesticating and mastering literally by enslaving plants and animals, so that we Mm -hmm. had a a 24-7 refrigerator refrigerator of calories, Mm -hmm. right? But then coalitions became even more important because you have a bunch of calories in one spot that unless you defend that spot, you're going to get eaten. Like literally everyone's just going to get eaten alive by groups that are much better at projecting coalition alliance. Then with 10 seconds left, you have writing being innovative because you've got these really big coalescing groups of um, about a million or two more people with five seconds after that you have the innovations of big gods moralizing religions and we can very clearly see um, the moralizing god hypothesis is fascinating you can very clearly see that it's population density that is the precursor to really big monotheistic moralizing gods because that's how you get a million people to cooperate you get a priest class and you're like, look, if this is our intersubjective belief network and you're going to and you're going to buy into it by pen or sword, you're going to buy into it. Because if you don't, we'll get outcompeted by another group. Right.
3: Wow. Now,
1: here's here's where it gets super exciting when we talk about the last final seconds here. And it really sets us up to understand what the hell is going on right now. This is where mismatch comes in, because with about a second left. We see in North America, in a place called Town, the nuclear family being innovated and the suburb being created. This is like the McDonald's of social <laughs> patterns, right? It's like nothing we had ever seen before. 99 and a half minutes of the movie, we start becoming isolated, lonely, and alone on a societal level at scale. So we have a massive mismatch there between the camp life in minute one and. The kinds of lives we're living on a day to day, and then with milliseconds left, you for the first time boot up five billion people with all the thousands of associated tribes online, throw them onto Twitter or X, mm-hmm. and then you you wonder why we're in a state of absolute chaos. And it helps it helps just contextualize the fact that before this moment, tr- you know, throughout the most of the of the human movie, you might as a tribe member meet two or three other tribes in the history of your tribe. Now we've got thousands of them interacting in highly complex and dynamic ways. And that's the close of the movie. And so here we have a setup for why things are are in a state that they are because we're in a state of evolutionary mismatch. That is, we evolved for how things were, not how things are. And that's one of the cornerstones of the book, uh, the opening of the book, especially. I talk about the science of evolutionary mismatch and the consequences of it for our species that was a lot so you guys were super patient i appreciated that you let me talk about the human movie but i hope
0: it's <laughs> yeah that was really no, great absolutely no absolutely no as, as far as sort of putting it into uh context how we developed um tribes and where we are now um it's, it's actually very interesting to then think about well it's still in many aspects we, we do uh still act tribally, right? There is this mismatch yeah. that's going on. Yes, we are isolated, but you know we have groups maybe online or different sorts of social groups still that maybe uh, we interact with and sort of get into that tribalist sort of uh, mindset, right? Especially mm-hmm. let's say politically, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I guess maybe this is a good point to maybe start to ask, what are sort of the negative aspects of tribalism? Uh, so that way maybe we could understand that and then maybe then understand what are the benefits of it? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. So I think it's important to realize that actually the core innovation here was one that was meant to increase and augment our capacity to cooperate. And that's so when we say the word tribalism in a modern context, we often mean it in a negative way. Right. Mm -hmm. We're like, oh, people are acting tribal. And actually, I do think that, so there's a difference between a tribe and tribalism. Tribalism is kind of like all the other bins of bad isms. It's the belief that your coalitionary alliance is somehow inherently superior than other coalitionary alliances. And so you can actually look at racism as being a subcategory of what the core root trait is in a way, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So that's that's what we're playing with here. But we have to, it's such a powerful thing because- at, at its core, it was evolved to augment cooperation at scale. The issue is the, the tension point is once you define that in group and you create that intersubjective belief network saying, hey, if you have like this paint on your face and this feather in your vest, I know you're from X tribe. Right. Mm-hmm. And now. And so that means I can I can begin cooperating with you uh, and others that I've never met before at scale. But it also means if you don't, you are subject to perhaps even the worst elements of human behavior—an outgroup. Because as soon as you make a circle, you also make the outside of the circle. Right. And so this sort of this trait meant that if you're prop, if you're aware of the signals in your environment, you can you can massively scale um, cooperation beyond what we were able to do before. What the oldest trait that allowed us to scale cooperation was kin selection. That goes back a billion years. Basically, Mm -hmm. this is the idea that if you have a organism in your environment that shares genes, the more genes they share, the more likely you are to invest in them and cooperate, right? Mm -hmm. And then you brought up chimpanzees just a moment ago. Um, They're one of maybe a dozen species on the planet that relatively recent, evolutionarily speaking, evolved friendship. Mm -hmm. The thing with friendship is you've got to be able to have a big, needy, brain that can record a ledger record of your interactions your past interactions and how those felt in terms of like morally good morally bad and only about a dozen or so species have that really really specifically recorded that they can do that Mm -hmm. so when humans innovated the tribe drive as a as a cognitive mechanism we were really it was how to scale trust at at scale um with to get beyond our cognitive limitation i'm sure you guys are familiar with the dunbar number dunbar's number
0: yeah uh, we used to live in tribes of 50 100 150 people and we could only hold that many people maybe in our mind but now we have way bigger uh villages or societal systems Mm -hmm. at scale
1: yeah Yeah, so this is um this is fascinating research by robert dunbar shows um how groups effectiveness scales And 150 seems to be like a hard limit for deep relationships. So we have about the average human being because of computational channel capacity in our brain, the average human being has about 100 to 150 deep relationships. And so this was when we innovated tribes and tribalism, this was a way to, it was like a cheat sheet, a heuristic to burst beyond that that limitation and start cooperating at scale. But then you get really bad things because when you don't signal authentically as part of someone's coalition alliance, that's when bad things can happen. And it can happen um, to the point where you get some of of humanity's worst behaviors like dehumanization and genocide. Yeah.
2: Yeah. You know, what's so interesting when I was thinking about it uh, and I was kind of going through the book and going through your work, I was thinking about, so we had David Myers on the podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, so mm-hmm. I, you, I'm sure you know who he is, social psychologist, uh, right? So the, the Lake Wabigan effect. Uh, so yeah, David Myers argues, and he and I had a conversation about this, I remember, because so I write a lot about pride and self-esteem. And so this was something that I ne- didn't necessarily see. But when I read his book, I was like, oh, huh, that was a kind of take on it that I didn't kind of, uh, I didn't really consider. So with David, uh, with David pretty much what argues, he would say, look, you know, I, even though the research does say that we need pride and we obviously need to feel good about ourselves i mean ultimately speaking what's going to happen is we're going to become very tribal so if you think mm-hmm. about you know the kind of the negative of it and so what happens is you feel good about yourself but then that's also in comparison to something or somebody else and inherently when one tribe feels like let's say if you win something uh mm-hmm. let's say you're, you're a football team and you just won the super bowl i mean automatically you're going to feel like you're better than the team you beat obviously and so it's the- going to have
1: physiological effects your testosterone profile changes your um all these, all these core hormonal variants are going to actually change on the basis of your imaginary identity, this yeah. illusory identity, being associating yourself with a social, what's called a social self. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, I didn't yeah. mean so to you, interrupt there. Yeah. No, no, just, it's,
2: it's okay. It's okay. But yeah, yeah, yeah. So, right. And so what's so interesting about that is that even though on the one hand, we do need to feel good about ourselves and we do need to feel like we're part of the in-group, right? So we know, again, so we need self-esteem. We know that ostr- being ostracized really like deeply, profoundly hurts us. And, you know, again, talk about physiological effects, I mean, obviously we come become severely depressed, etc. right? So and on the one hand, so this isn't something I've really been able to figure out. And I mean, also, you know, who am I? Uh, but I haven't really been able to figure out a way to kind of square the two, where on the one hand, you really, you, we desperately need pride and we need to feel like we're a part of some i would say higher in terms of the social hierarchy some in group that's of pretty notable status right and Uh we had also on chuck thompson who talked about status and he says pretty much status is inherent to being human he's Uh like look we we really can't overcome it right Uh but then you know when we think about the negatives of it okay and this is like why david would say that we probably need to do away with it is because again automatically we when we compare we automatically devalue so i guess and this is going to be such a hard question to ask but i do want to know your thoughts on it so how do we kind of to make sense of the fact that yes on the one hand we do need to feel like we're a part of a community we do need to feel like that community matters and is important but on the other hand like it causes so much discord and obviously Mm -hmm. and violence i mean it it can literally even lead to violence if you look at even like something stupid like sports rivalries i mean yeah Yeah. most of the time they don't become any it doesn't become severely bad but i mean there are times where people literally kill each other over that stuff
1: Mm -hmm. yeah so what's really you you hinted at how challenging this topic is Mm-hmm. What's really challenging about this is that, I mean, we're talking about ancient brain structures here, like the anterior cingulate cortex. This is the part of the brain that is, it's very close to the limbic system, but it's its basically, it determines your social self. Mm-hmm. You, and and so this is what identity does. If you and I grow a relationship over time, then the anterior cingulate cortex is going to start associating your pain or your success and your happiness as identical to my own. Mm -hmm. To So much so that if you were to hook up a fMRI to somebody in a kitchen and they're a loved one and they cut their finger while you're watching them and they're bleeding out and they say, ow, the anterior cingulate cortex is gonna light up in both individuals. Mm -hmm. And it's gonna, that ACC is gonna be like the thing, you know, that driving force when somebody you love is in pain, that thing that where before, it's not conscious, you're just over there and you're helping them. Mm -hmm. It's because it's literally tricking you into thinking that social other is you. Mm -hmm. That's what it's doing. And so the key here, I think is to recognize that that is actually a superpower because it's the source of one of our greatest capacities as humans, as homo sapiens, to show empathy and sympathy. The issue is the moral issue we're trying to get to is that it's not a moral problem, it's an energy problem because it's extremely neurophysiologically expensive to enact these things at scale. So if you were to see a stranger in the same situation doing the exact same magic activities and they cut their finger, it doesn't light up, Mm -hmm. right? And so this is just, it's an energy problem. It's not a morality problem. It's that there are just energy and capacity limitations to the human brain. And we have to be conscious of these things. And I think, I think maybe one way forward is to actually leverage them in the sense that. So I think right now, one of the key ways we could move forward is by reweighting our identities. This is something I discussed in the very last part of the book, the last chapter. So this is pretty scary stuff, guys. In my last, I taught my summer course all on this particular topic. I called it the trust paradox, but the one of the sources for the class was our tribal future. And we, I, ha, I challenged the class to rank their identity as they would a social psychologist. So you ask somebody, uh, how proud are you to identify with this group? Mm-hmm. And then you ask them to list all the groups they identify with, and then they get a Likert scale, right? They are. They're not very likely to be proud of identifying with the group, or they're very strong, strongly associated with the group. Mm-hmm. Then you get that scale, and then I asked them because we had gone through the definition of tribe at this point. I asked them to to list by it which of these groups are tribal groups, meaning which ones transcend Dunbar's number, which mm-hmm. one, which one of these identity groups are so big that you couldn't know everybody in the group, and it was pretty terrifying to see that a lot of students, like a disconcerting number of students only had tribal identities, meaning they identified as say a Democrat or a Republican, as opposed to say my soccer team, right? Mm -hmm. Like face-to-face where these things like the anterior cingular cortex, you want those activating in those particular contexts. But now I think we have a situation where a lot of people are overweighting their identities, their identity stacks into tribal affiliations with these big mega super tribes right. that have very little to do with your day to day sense of well being, health, all these things. That's going to be governed by your face to face relationships in a much more powerful and profound way. And so my challenge to my students was, guys, reweight your identities. It's fine, you know, identify with a political party. That's that's okay. Be politically active. That's okay. But don't weight so much of your energy into it that your sense of wellness and your sense of uh, your your health are actually connected to them because these are not real things. They're illusory things. The real things are the identity groups that you have that are face-to-face and they're much more ancient, like the camp, right? The camp was minute one in our evolutionary narrative of the movie. Um, band levels, so your neighborhood, your community, that's the stuff we should be waiting and throwing all our identity energies into to help us sort of keep away from the dangers of this stuff at scale.
0: <laughs> What's very fascinating to me, though, is that how many how many of your students actually put the weight of their identity into these super tribes, right? Mm-hmm. Now, this is going to sound like a really stupid or maybe obvious sort of question to ask, but what, it, what do you think is going on there that's making them want to pick these super tribes? Is it just the sheer mass of people that happens to be part of that group? Therefore, it just conveys yeah. that status? to them yeah as opposed to
2: like in the in groups that they're you know normally around yeah
1: yeah so i think there's it's twofold it's a it's a two-front war where because of remember the mcdonald's social pattern that we have of of like a network of a nuclear family because of growing up in these essentially socially blunted groups we haven't had direct access to those core group level identities uh, that most of our ancestors did for 99 and a half minutes of the movie mm-hmm. so i think we've we've un- and you can see it in the the growth and, and development patterns of adolescents now and the stats that are coming out are absolutely really they're really scary stuff like suicidal ad- ideation is now up to 10 percent in adolescents who are in college um 50 mm-hmm. of kids in college now are they basically are saying that they feel a sense of hopelessness at a daily, um, that they don't want to go on. Uh, and and that's doubled since 2009. And I wonder if you just plop these kids or even, not even just these kids, but like, say, um, you know, kids who go on shooting sprees or suicide, you know, suicide, These the really bad epidemic of school shootings that we have. I wonder what would happen i mean this is you can't test this but like what if you plopped that kid from that isol- typically like isolated lonely environment they developed in what if you put them in a hunter gatherer tribe <laughs> and then see what they look like at the same age just run that experiment and my gut guys is that they would be a pretty well adjusted human being <laughs> <laughs> and like a, a like a pretty decent human being and yeah. and that's how powerful this is. So you've got you've got that element that we're under socialized at the community level, and then at the at the at the big scale level, at the super tribal level, right? Because the average the average Homo sapien tribe for 99 and a half minutes of the human movie was about fifteen hundred people. That's mm-hmm. like your your organic grassroots tribe, right? Small scale tribe. We're probably built to to live and dwell into one of those tribes, but now we have super tribes. As, a, as it as necess, it it's necessitated by the fact that we need to live in nation states to project power and not be murdered, like the 20th century taught us, right? If you don't if you don't project power at scale, then you get in trouble. you get you get mowed over by other groups. Um, so, yeah, so so, yeah, I, I would just say I'll round out round out one one final point here is that what I think we've got going on here is weaponized tribalism, political tribalism, to the point where in the United States, now only four percent of marriages are intermarried between Democrat and Republican.
0: Mm-hmm. So, like
1: back in the sixties and seventies, you know, it the big moral uh, push was like, "Hey, guys, we can marry interracially." And now that's not even it's not a issue statistically, but marrying across political party is totally a tribal um, issue. When you look at the House of Representatives and their voting patterns over the past sixty years, it was this if you were to imagine them as source populations, interbreeding, you'd see all this healthy interbreeding between like the source populations of ideas. And now it's like two distinct balls that you would see if you were predicting a speciation event, like two different species are being made. So anyway, yeah, yeah. it's, it's crazy.
2: Yeah. So I, I just want to kind of uh, pick up on the idea of these uh, of the super tribes. So what's mm. so interesting about them, I think, is that there's a kind of um. so because it's so so dis- disparate and so kind of widely spread. And I'm actually going to go back to the example of Roman Reigns and Bloodline. Uh, nice. So, yeah. yeah. So what I think about it is that, OK, so like let's say being a Democrat. So the, being yeah. a Democrat, there's a set of values uh, in, contained within it. So let's say if I were in a tribe of Democrats, let's say Alan and I had a tribe of Democrats, right? Let's say we were in the, some case like the Blood line right so the bloodline is a great kind of uh i guess example of corruption in tribes so Mm -hmm. when you're so close to somebody right so this is what i love about the kind of roman reigns character is that he has no values i mean he essentially does he's a machiavellian right to the Mm -hmm. extreme to the core and so Mm -hmm. he keeps and maintains power right through kind of any means necessary and what you get is you get like in the uso characters where like jimmy also kind of doesn't have many values and then like jay you could kind of see that he fluctuates back and forth sometimes he feels like he does sometimes he doesn't so when you have like these super tribes like the democrats what i actually like about it is that you have values that connect people you know from across the let's say across the pond or whatever from different parts of even the world i mean there are people even in other countries that would say like yeah i'm a democrat even though they don't have that party system there uh but what's so interesting again is going back to the idea of like tribalism and this again going back to the bloodline is that it's it's so easy to corrupt so when you're saying that you know i'm in this small tribe of let's say and you know going back to the example it's about like six people or whatever it is right it's easy to say well you know i'm willing to do anything to gain the approval of you know the tribal chief or Even the Mm -hmm. wise man and the Paul Heyman character, but when you identify with something like, let's say, I I could even say Republicans. This is not. I'm not even getting into what's better, right? Let's say I I, I identify. I mean, let's say I'll identify as a Republican, right? And then I would say, okay, well, the thing is, so because I'm not in a specific like core tribe of Republicanism, meaning there's no like head tribal chief of Republicanism. Therefore, I can say that these are going to be my core values, whether I'm in Utah, whether I'm in Colorado, whether I'm in New York, wherever, right? So there's not much of a there's not such a deep connection. Meaning maybe I mean even though you can argue that. Day to day, we probably relate more so to the people who are, let's say, in my case, Republicans now, I would say. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the point is to say that when it is kind of so disparate and it is uh, kind of so widespread, the great thing about that is I think it's much less easy to corrupt. Whereas, again, if you do have something like the bloodline, I mean, essentially the values kind of go out the window because, again, everybody kind of appeases the tribal chief. And, you know, since I mentioned chimp empire, this is what you kind of even see amongst like chimps, right? And you see this in some mammals. Well, what they do is because there's a hierarchy, they just appease the tribal leader. So they don't really care about, I mean, I mean, obviously animals are not really going to care per se, but like people don't really care about value. So, yeah. So, you know, my question would be, do you think that it's possible that maybe, um, maybe even though yes, on the one hand, we could say that sometimes it's a bad thing to have, uh, let's say distinct or distant kind of tribes that we feel a part of or distant people that we feel a yeah. part of, but also can there be maybe a kind of understanding that, yeah, the in-groups can be corrupted maybe just as easily?
1: Yeah. So the thing that springs to mind is that, The phenomena you're talking about likely began when things started getting really scaling up in in human population, maybe around in the the, uh, human movie, around a minute or 30 seconds left when we started being sedentary. When I was talking just a moment ago about these organic tribes of like 1500, here is the reason why, and this is actually very hopeful, because... Basically, in in an organic tribe, it is less about physical dominance and coercion. Mm. It is more about um, what do you bring to the table as a leader? It's a prestige hierarchy. And that means that those who typically, in small scale foragers, those who give the most of their time,
0: Mm. energy,
1: skill sets, those who demonstrate the most on brand tribal loyalty like of the sacred values of that group, they naturally elevate to leadership positions in a way that once you had strong men come onto the scene because of the power they could distribute with by rallying tens of thousands of dudes Mm -hmm. to be able to command militarily, that was, that's really weird. That's not a, it's, it's a very recent innovation in the human narrative. When you have things at the right scale, for example, a, a priest can corrupt, a Catholic priest can corrupt a, at scale, right? Mm-hmm. Like they can, or, or like a bishop can corrupt or a Pope can corrupt at scale, but a shaman can't corrupt at scale. Mm-hmm. If you are a dick as a shaman mm-hmm. and you're using your powers like for like evil, like witchcraft, if you're using it to coerce others, you're in face-to-face relationships, they're going to kill you. You're going to get mm-hmm. excommunicated. There's going to mm-hmm. be a direct cost for you betraying the sacred values and trusts that they give you as a person of spiritual prominence in your group. Mm-hmm. The costs are real. And so um, Richard Rangham, he has a book out that came out a few years ago. It's a beautiful book, um, the uh, Goodness Paradox. Mm-hmm. And the main thrust of the argument here is that tyrants, specifically over over evolutionary time. If you tried to dominate like a chimp, like chimpanzee raw power domination in a group, and you were going to be the tyrant of your group, mm-hmm. it can it can work up to a point,
3: right. because mm-hmm.
1: at a certain point, not only will you be killed and excommunicated, it'll be so you reduce the likelihood of vendetta killings. It'll be your brother or your father that kills you.
3: Wow! wow. And
1: this is very systematic across small-scale human populations, and over a million years. That basically selects out tyrants in the genome to the point where they are sort of generational aberrants and not the norm like they were when we were uh, a shared a common ancestor with the chimpanzee.
2: Oh, okay, wait. So now I have a kind of difficult question for you. Okay. But why is <laughs> it that? It. <laughs> yeah. So, why is it that? So, here's my thinking, right? Because that yeah. seems like a paradox. Because ultimately, the people who seem to want power are the yeah. narcissistic type tyrants, right? Yeah. So, they might do it through more benevolent means. But my thinking is, okay, for somebody to pursue power, for somebody good, let's say, to pursue power, it often seems like we have to kind of coax them into it. And they do it sort of begrudgingly. Yes. Can I just
0: add something to that? True. Mm-hmm. So, so, obviously, in the end, we'll have the answer from you. But what it seems to me is that there's sort of the evolution of it is you first will have someone like a tyrant uh, it will evolve that in order to get society up to a certain level right and then once actually we have certain needs met and things develop eventually uh we you know uh we wouldn't want that tyrant anymore mm-hmm. uh things will get good enough where maybe then a different kind of leader would be needed. I didn't articulate that really greatly, but. So, so
1: what I'm seeing there, I think that's true in a post agrarian world, Mm -hmm. in a pre-agrarian world, which is the vast majority of our human evolution is a pre-agrarian world. I don't think that that's true because what, what could happen is we were essentially nomadic and we could take the little social shell we had built with our camps and our bands and our, and our, maybe our tribe, our single Mm -hmm. tribe And if things got hot in that area, you could always just move it. And there was enough space until we got to the point about eight, 9,000 years ago where things started. We got so good at mastering other genomes, both animal and plant that we started encroaching everywhere. And then that's when tribalism really it's, it's most foul forms, the political tribalism that we're talking about. That's kind of scary. That's when it really went root to shoot because It was those strong men, those coercive tyrants that could most masterfully manipulate our symbolic powers to get the most people to buy into the the biggest intersubjective belief network, tribe, to leverage the collective watts of the entire group, to project raw energy and power into the environment so that they could take chain of custody over the resources in the environment which is Mm -hmm. by the way the objective of every form of life that has ever lived lived on the since the dawn of history and prehistory so they just did it really freaking well and let's make no mistake about it homo sapiens are apex predators we all we that's one of the reasons we are and we we didn't do it because of our claws or the size of our canines or because we're strong we're a chimp would eat us alive literally in a, in a, in a fist fight. We did it because we could take symbols and use symbols to compound the collective energy of a group. And that is the core function of what a tribe does. Even so much to the fact that it's not about like these human brains. We often associate, and this is getting to Andy Norman stuff. Mm-hmm. We we often associate the human brain with this truth, seeking thing or reason seeking thing that's not it at all it's the product of natural selection it's the product it's seeking survival reproduction yeah and it's it this is what i meant with my opening line of how identity shapes your perception it's not about being true it's about projecting that coalition correctly yeah i'll, I'll mm-hmm. give i'll give one example here um let's say uh yeah let's let's say for example, um, the flat earth movement. Okay. (laughs) So the flat earth movement, there's this, have you seen the, the documentary uh, the behind the curve? Mm -mm. It's, it's actually really fantastic. Um, It's all about the flat earther resurgence in the past several years. And there's this guy called Mark Sargent. He's kind of like the leader of the movement. Tribal chief. He's the tribal chief of the (laughs) flat earthers. And there's a super candid moment at the end where they're asking him uh, the interviewers ask him well what what would if you tried to leave like what what would happen and the guy like his his face basically got went completely blank you notice this moment where like the body language just kind of shut down and he was like I actually I can't like mm-hmm. they won't they wouldn't let me it's so my group needs me so much like even mm-hmm. if even if I even if the earth was round like right, right. there's I that pride there's the pride there's the social identity it's not about the it, here's the thing flat earthism is not about whether or not the earth is flat or it's round it's actually under the hood about a social community and a group to belong to that's the driving force and it's not about political truth it's you know fitness beats truth all the time it'll it'll always do it
2: yeah and i like the concept that you when you start when you think about um let's say uh, people who are kind of more intellectual or more let's say educated i like that the, uh, so the biggest predictor i mean we know obviously the biggest predictor is uh, of of let's say beliefs is not necessarily data or the, or sort of the understanding of data right even though you would think that obviously the more educated yep. somebody is yeah it is somebody's tribal identity so what's interesting is that there could be um, a correlation between let's say let's say truth and somebody let, accuracy that's a better term so there could be a correlation between beliefs and accuracy whereas let's say if you identify as a democrat you're probably going to have more accuracy. Accuracy in your beliefs but what's mm-hmm. interesting is if you start going into it and start asking people okay but like why do you think climate change is a problem or why are you against abortion right most of the time people don't, don't really don't. have they answers they, they don't even know right it's like well i mean isn't that like what everybody
0: believes it's just the feeling yeah, well, I, I, yeah it's, uh, no no, no yeah, i'm not I know. saying that but that's that's kind
1: of yeah up. yeah they yeah.
0: won't be able to rationalize. well it's, it's
1: got it's why it's this is an intractable problem because nine out of ten people they're what they're saying whether when they support or deny global warming
3: Mm
1: -hmm. they're not really making an argument for or against global warming they're saying i'm part of a tribe yeah that's what the signal is and 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 to so this was huge for me realizing that actually this was rational because at first glance you think well that's not rational but no the evolutionary logic is there And it made me think of religion in a whole new light. Um, I grew up in a fundamentalist Christian cult for all intents and purposes. And my father was a fundamentalist minister for 20 years. And so I I had, when I got out of that, I had a very stark, um, I would say allergic reaction to most religion at at scale. And Mm -hmm. that is maybe one of the reasons I'm an evolutionary anthropologist because I needed another source of, of meaning or purpose. And what i what i realized here is that the the actually what the value proposition for most religions is like say for example the holy trinity it actually plays with paradox and absurdity as a currency Mm -hmm. so if you it's basically uh, it's the fact that three things like three things are one thing like Mm -hmm. that doesn't make sense right but as a if you can authentically look someone in the eye and say oh yeah the holy trinity is real Mm-hmm. and i believe it to my core you're saying i'm an inveterate tribe member mm-hmm. nothing will, nothing will stop me from being a team player right. and that's the value prop it's not it's not the reality so religions tribes intersubjective belief networks they actually use absurdity as a currency to gain more members or as a test a litmus test for the members yeah. they have you see what i'm saying Yeah, yeah. The the test
2: aspect of it makes sense. Yeah, Yeah. and I also and I also like that you talk about the fact that again, going back to the concept of being uh, educated, that it's actually the people who are more educated are actually just better at rationalizing those beliefs. So, can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Absolutely. So, um, there's this idea that and Andy and I have been talking about this a lot. Like this idea of perhaps moving beyond this title of being a critical thinker might Mm -hmm. be a really good, valuable step because what happens is, first of all, when you say I am part of the group of critical thinkers. You've already, you're saying you're part of a team and it's corrupted your capacity to think already as a fundamental statement. And mm-hmm. you have you have um, halo bias. So everybody thinks that, you know, they have a privileged position on truth or understanding. And we know statistically not like, there's just an average, right? So if, if 80% of people believe they have privileged truth and it's just a bell curve, we know that most people are probably wrong. Uh, so this idea of some of the really interesting science coming out of here is a concept called numeracy. Have, are, have you guys talked at all with anybody about Not numeracy? Not at all, actually. No, but I know cool. you
2: wrote about it. So yeah, go ahead.
1: Awesome. Right on. Yeah. 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 So this idea of nu- numeracy is fascinating because of basically, uh, people who, what numeracy is, I'll define it. If you're numerate, you can look at a data set and you can correctly infer, from what's going on by looking at the data set. Now, what they found though was that high numerate people, so this highly educated, typically high IQ people. So there's a little bit of a genetic, there's a little bit of an education environment component to this. Yep. But high numerate people actually magnify bias because when it's bored, when it's when it's against their team, they are masterful at evading and then post hoc rationalizing the departure and the evasion. And when it's for them, they're super accurate at identifying the information that reaffirms their belief more so than the less numeric group. So the less numeric groups are like, like, imagine this much variation, mm-hmm. right? The high numeric groups have this much variation. Wow. And so, and so they're magnifying bias. They're not lessening bias. So I think one of what, the reason why Andy's work is so, brilliant and why we should think about it deeply is because it's not necessarily about this being having the title of a critical analysis but it's about building mental immunity and resistance to bad ideas and this is I think part of it um we can't as we can't let identity warp our, per, our perception and our capacity to tackle vertical truth which I think is, is almost endemic even in academia now right like right. if you identify I'm I'm an academic uh I'm a critical thinker Literally, if you say that, I am less apt to listen to you. Right. <laughs> as a as a I would I would rather listen to somebody on the street over a beer, uh just talk about how they feel about something than uh listen to that person talk about their, their ideology because uh, I'm about to get whooped. Whooped with tribal ideology. <laughs> right, right. No, absolutely. No. Well,
2: can I just make one quick distinction? What's yeah. I, just wondered, So, yeah, what's so interesting is that if you look at critical thinker, what it actually usually means is liberal. And when mm. you look at free thinker, it usually means libertarian conspiracy mm. theorist. Go ahead. Mm. Interesting.
0: And so, then would the solution to this then be the introduction of meta beliefs? And then, mm. what are uh, meta beliefs?
1: Yeah. So, I think meta beliefs are, I think, a, a really important part of the puzzle. Um, that was one of the coolest thing of, of coming across uh, mental media and the concept is the the recent science on what meta belief is. So meta belief is the belief that beliefs can change, right? And so I think maybe one one way forward here. This is my swing for the fences solution for our species. Let's let I'll pitch to you guys and see if you can disentangle what I'm trying to do here. So I have this idea of you know if if this is a tribe virus, if this is at scale, you know. Notwithstanding all the good stuff that can happen face to face if you really leverage group identities, because that's good stuff. and we should we should we should nurture that stuff. But at when it's at scale, we need to protect ourselves from the worst parts of it. And if tribalism is the inherent view that my group is superior, innately superior to other coalitionary alliances and other groups, if that's bad, here's one way to protect it. We have a vaccine that uses groupishness. And what I mean by groupishness is identity protective cognition. That is, as soon as you identify with a group, it's one of the biggest biases we've we've got, one of the most powerful and robust scientifically, as soon as you identify with a group, you are going to privilege information that supports the group and you're gonna eliminate information that, that goes against it.
0: Mm-hmm. But
1: what if we channel that energy for good? And so if a vaccine is two components, an adjuvant, an adjuvant is the instruction giving protocol in mm-hmm. a vaccine, and then the immunogen is like taking that, that active agent um, from the virus and using it so that the immune system understands it. What if we take that as identity protective cognition and then we couple identity protective cognition with meta belief? So like, basically we're saying I, I am part of a meta tribe. I play for team human and we believe at the systems level of the species level, we believe as a group Leveraging that IPC, that beliefs can change, mm-hmm. and that's one of the, as as Andy discovered that's one of the most powerful ways to to inoculate our minds from these kind of tribal vectors that are trying to manipulate our perception of reality. And so that's that's the pitch. That's the tribe vaccine.
0: Yeah, and what's so interesting? Did you want to say? No, something? I just want to say I love that idea. By the way, awesome. because
1: honestly,
2: how
0: are you, at scale? How yeah. you know a lot of people have thought about this. Like, how do you yeah. do it? Oh, do I make? An amazing podcast that goes viral, talking yep. about critical thinking. Not enough people know about critical thinking, right? Mm-hmm. And then maybe you introduce like little nice ideas that spread yeah. virally. People think of things like that, right? But at scale. Yeah, if you had a a big, you know, sort of like a campaign, like a crowdfunded sort of campaign, right? right? Using like the best uh, science uh, available to us uh, regarding advertising, and right. actually make this whole team human thing, like how you introduced in the last chapter, yep. it actually sounds very, very hopeful. And yeah, I, w- I would love that. What's well, the Socratic? I, li- it's a Socratic line of "I'm a citizen of the world."
1: Yes, and and we don't. I, I'm under no illusions here. We're going to get one hundred percent, you know, immunity. What we really need is sort of herd immunity, like mm-hmm. enough, enough, you know, you need to change a social norm or a value across a society. You need about 20 to 25 percent. It's about 25 to 28 percent of the people to buy into the new social norm. We call this the Overton window. It slides. Right. Um, for example, gay rights like that was an Overton window. It was it seemed totally intractable and it would never happen for a long time. And then all of a sudden, like overnight, it did. That's because it, it broke the twenty five percent threshold. So these things are these things are super, you know, identity is an illusion. So this is hopeful because it's not actually a real thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we don't we we haven't even talked about meditation, but like you know maybe in a metaphysical way as well, identity is not real, and if we can use it to leverage our capacity to see veridical truth and to and to. Bring down the temperature in the room on all this nasty political, weaponized political tribalism. I think it just increases the probabilistics of of us being a successful species through the 21st century and beyond. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And then so also I was thinking, what happens when, let's say, you have two conflicting loyalties? So what happens mm-hmm. when you have, let's say, two tribes that you're a part of that in some ways conflict with one another? So I have an example yeah. that comes to mind. So yeah. one of one of our uh one of our really good friends, like so on the one hand, he would consider himself to be a Republican libertarian. So that's definitely yeah. not a tribe that I associate with. But mm-hmm. then on the other hand, so he and I are pretty good friends. And then on top of that, like we love professional wrestling together, right? Yep. So there's a sort of like a conflict, right? So we don't really focus on politics, we don't really talk about it much, you know, for good reason obviously but then it's like but what happens when people feel like so technically by the way that's a boundary that he and i have i mean we bring it up yeah. but it's pretty cordial so it's not an issue right but i was thinking in that kind of context right what happens when people aren't necessarily able to uh like compartmentalize those tribal loyalties what happens when they do conflict one on the one let's say you know the family member right what yeah. happens when you have a family member who's like i don't know deeply involved and in, you know some i'm gonna just use conspiracy so let's say he is a deeply involved like conspiracy theorist uh-huh. and then you're like oh my god man i love this guy but he just keeps talking about the shit over and over again
1: yeah yeah at that point you've got to use the the science of identity to your advantage so the best way to do that and it's not like using it in a manipulative way actually what you're doing you're doing a couple things so you're elevating what you want to do with that in this example of your really close friend right you want to in the moments that you want to have where you communicate with them open and honestly you want to elevate your shared identities Mm. so Emphasize like your identity as a wrestling fan, right? Elevate to that, to his attention in that yeah. moment that you want to have a conversation perhaps about some some greater or larger issue because then that interior cingulate cortex is going to light up like, oh yeah, we are, we are wrestling fans and we are together on this. I'll give you a good example of this. And this is one of the coolest uh, modern examples of, of tribal identity switching that I've come yeah. across. In 2011... May, Mets versus Phillies, one mm-hmm. of the one of the biggest rivalries in baseball. Like it's nasty. Like uh, right, right. I think they might statistically have some of the most the highest frequency of getting out of the dugout and like beating the crap out of each other. Wow. Kind of frequency for it's it's pretty intense. And around the sixth inning, and this was like a nail biter of a game. It was super close. Uh, there were some nasty things that happened in the opening innings, and uh, around the sixth or seventh inning, the crowd started chanting USA oh wow over and over again to the point where it was like what everybody was like well what what's going on <laughs> and then it and then it and then it died down then it, it came back even bigger and longer and more pronounced in the next ending and they had to like what what the hell was going on they had just killed osama bin laden oh. they had just sealed team six it just got him, and if you look at the tenor of the rest of the game, like they ended up like hugging and embracing afterward. It was like this almost like a tr- in one second, they went from a, a distinct rivalry to superordinate identity. Right. And that superordinate identity became the most salient identity in that moment, even destroying the, the identities as rivals. Mm-hmm. A really epic historical example of this is Gettysburg in the civil war this is like the this was the nasty it's like 51,000 people died in one day it was nasty and it had been a long protracted war since 1863 and one of the officers of the confederacy he did a picket line charge with his with his column and he got hit with a bullet thrown off his horse and he he hit the ground he's bleeding out his lifeblood is bleeding out and he extends his hand to the heavens and he emits a signal
3: mm-hmm. a
1: very powerful tribal signal mm-hmm. i don't know what it is because it's a secret signal ah. and on the other side of a union officer um his name was Hiram Bingham picked up the confederate officer and brought him to his field house dressed his wounds and as the guy was like dying out promised to take his goods back to his family which he fulfilled that obligation after the war mm-hmm. and he was three things it was his spurs his journal and a masonic mm-hmm. necklace mm-hmm. wow and in that mo- so guys this is this is i think we can't understate this because there is a magic to to correctly tribal signaling if you can have two enemies in a civil war who are literally fighting each other in a life or death situation and then a signal changes that in one second yeah. from from enemy to ally, that means that there's some magic in here we have to tap in the 21st century to survive as a species. We have to understand this trait.
2: Yo, know, and by the way, speaking of symbols, the way that my friend and I we greet each other is with yes. one of these. Yeah, nice. the wolf
1: Yeah, yeah, the wolf you go, symbol. Dude, that's I, it. It's the power it, of symbols.
2: And <laughs> what's so cool is that, like, anytime you see somebody in the street, like, what's like yeah. a wrestling shirt, but particularly like an NWO shirt, you always yeah. go up to them and you flash one of these, and they everybody knows what they're talking about.
1: I I have a theory about because I'm a metal fan. I love mm-hmm. I love Metallica. I've seen Metallica like five times live. Um, I write Absolutely. about them in the book. Yeah, oh, big fan. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so I go, I love going to metal shows and it's interesting. There's a cultural norm of whenever you go to the metal show, you don't wear the band t-shirt of Mm -hmm. the, of the, of the band that you're going to see who's the main event. You always wear a different t-shirt and I have a, I have a hypothesis about this. And I don't know if it's worth spending time testing. So oh, it definitely
2: like... is. No, I think it is. <laughs>
1: that sounds super interesting because it's super, yeah. like
2: it's not intuitive. It's right? not why, intuitive because, like, yeah.
1: why? I just I was like noting this, and after writing this book, I was like, oh, I have I have a hypothesis. I think it's because when you're emitting that signal, mm-hmm. you're you're already in a kind of a super tribe of metal fan, but that's a very mm-hmm. abstract. You're looking for real, authentic relationships. So if you go to a mm-hmm. super tribal event and you can hone in specifically. Oh no, they're a fan of Mastodon. Mm. I'm going to buy this guy a beer and have a conversation with him. Or buy this this woman a beer and have a conversation with her. And you have this you have this intersubjective belief network, a value system of symbols that can already bootstrap your cooperation. And you're trying. We're always trying to seek out and find new members for a coalition, right? So yeah. uh, that's my working hypothesis about why people go to to metal shows and don't wear the the uh, the front runners.
2: Oh, that's very cool. And I've, and by the way, this is, I mean, I'm not sure if you're a fan, but I'm going to assume that you are. Mm. So we're actually on the verge. I don't know how close this is. I'm assuming this is going to happen because it's been in the works for some time. We're actually at some point this year, I think we're going to have Wendy Dio on the show. Ronnie mm. James, Dio's wife. Are you a fan of his?
1: Uh, I'm, actually, I'm familiar, but now that oh, you mentioned it, yeah, oh, you would, I'm going to check Love out. Dio.
2: Yeah, so I know, you know, obviously the original Black Sabbath. Yes. Yeah. So Dio was the replacement for Ozzy at the time, and then like, so he kind of went uh, off and did it. Sure. Yeah, he went. Yeah, so no, you no, know, no. You yeah, I'm, that, I'm familiar. I'm familiar. You know, you, you know the symbol, right?
1: Yeah. yeah. Dio
2: created that, by the way. There's a That's whole story awesome. behind. Yes, yeah, so I that did not how- know that. Yeah, yeah. So the, his grandmother at the time, so I don't remember exactly the exact story, but this was, it was like a symbol to, so it was an ancient, um, it was from like the Italian culture from like Sicily. It was a symbol like to oh. ward off evil spirits. And nice. Dio one day realized like, oh shit, that's like, you know, it looks like the Moloch, right? So it looks like the devil symbol. So mm-hmm. he threw it up at a show and he's like the entire crowd threw it back at me. And that's how the symbol was born. That's
1: how the symbol was born. Yeah. And that's, uh, you, it created a greater strength symbolically to an intersubjective bleed network i.e. drive there we go yeah. full circle yeah. love it yeah. guys
2: <laughs> all right so uh as we wrap up alan any yeah. final
0: questions for david or oh, do you wait. Wanna... so okay actually wait, i the... mean i do want to ask about uh trust building technology actually let's uh, do that. a okay. little bit mm. uh just to kind of get into that and uh what are some examples of those um that are currently in development like, crypt- yeah. like crypto for example
1: yeah yeah oh i'm i'm stoked you you asked that question uh the cool so I am not a fan of proof of stake. I, I, I don't know how familiar you guys are with proof of stake versus proof of work, but proof of so these I'll just roughly define these things. um proof of work is a ledger of record that needs to be tethered to the world with like actual like um electricity, right? There's mm-hmm. like a real work component as for proof of stake. so proof of proof of work, the example the the proof of concept of proof of work is Bitcoin mm-hmm. um where you have real minds tethered to real electricity, real Watts. So it's, it's in, in, in a way, it's a very real thing as to where something like Ethereum, which now is proof of stake, meaning that your abstract God Kings who, who run the code behind it can manipulate it at any, at any time and change the back doors. And, you know, it's the Ponzi schemes galore. So I'm very, I'm anti-proof of stake, big fan of proof of work. Um, and, if we can leverage this new technology that's coming out on um, DAOs, Decentralized Autonomous Organizations, mm-hmm. I'm seeing some really cool stuff with internet native tribes going on right now. When we talk about the tribes of the future, what is our tribal future? So one cool example is a group called Cabin. They are like a decentral. think of them as a decentralized city. They have 22 neighborhoods spanning four continents and they use DAO technology to democratize and also protect the constitution of their group because if it's decentralized and it's on the blockchain it's uncensorable so Mm -hmm. you even even the ccp can't you know destroy their constitution or destroy their group because it's this decentralized thing and as long as the blockchain exists they exist so in a way the re you know we talked about power projection at the very beginning of the show um, the reason we kept scaling and scaling and scaling into these nation states is because of protection and security. But right. now, it, now in the 21st century, the things that we're valuing are much more disembodied things. they right. are things like like even the money that we use now is a, it's on a credit card. It's this disembodied thing. It's
2: even attention.
3: Attention. Even is attention. A currency.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So these things are disembodied and we need technology to protect those things. Mm -hmm. militaries protect hardware they protect your your physical property but if we're beginning to value things that are in the digital world we need a military to protect those things too Mm -hmm. and that can protect that can allow people to assemble this is a very libertarian idea but like freedom of assembly right like it allow basically what i'm seeing now is it allows groups to come together in like a, a a experimental sandbox of societies and so that's why i'm super bullish about the the more free parts of the world uh, in the economically developed world that have these technologies and also uh, allowances in their their constitutions to allow this freedom of assembly because then you're going to get experiments going on of like new societies and new tribes. And if you can do one thing in particular, it's like Paleolithic democracy at its finest. If you can vote with your feet, then you are casting the ultimate vote. You are saying, I don't want to belong to this group anymore. I'm going to go to this group. And what's yeah. going to happen is over time, natural selection will create an arms race of these groups competing for citizens mm-hmm. in these in these internet native tribes that have become real tribes grounded in the real world using these technologies of trust. And what you'll see is an arms race of wellness because if you can vote with your feet, you can go to the place that's going to enhance the, your life and the people that you care about most and if you can leave the places that aren't fulfilling that obligation, it's they're gonna die or they're gonna adapt. And so you're gonna get people competing for wellness enhancing societies. Wow. And that's why I'm, I'm, I'm actually super hopeful for our species. I, I, I think we've got a shot. And if, especially when we, when we start leveraging what we do best and that's technology.
2: Yeah. so yeah the, i guess the thinking here is evolutionarily speaking on the uh, on the one hand it seems like a bad thing because i mean we haven't really evolved for uh for let's say for truth seeking per se i mean yep. we say we say to ourselves that we have but it's more like no we evolved to survive and uh we want to survive and we do so obviously by adapting the beliefs of our tribes but mm-hmm. i guess what you're saying is that we're also able to change the environment so if we create like different types of tribes where mm-hmm. truth seeking does become a higher value on the priority wow. yeah, yeah 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 so then, then what we're doing is we're saying okay cool we can kind of have our cake and needed too on the Absolutely. one hand we could have truth seeking and on the other hand we can have a tribe uh, let's say cohesiveness that's
1: what i'm talking about yeah no you yeah. perfectly articulated that that's uh-huh. great yeah
2: all right excellent uh okay so now as we wrap up alan final questions for david yes, before uh, we go
0: if we wanted to follow you follow yeah. your work and of course buy the book uh, where can we do that
1: so um the, the on twitter or x at uh, primal primate instagram at primal primatologist I've got a Substack that I that's in development right now. I've got a couple articles out. It's called the Tribe Drive Newsletter, and it's mm. basically like the do-it-yourself of how to build your own uh, camps, bands, mm. and tribes for the 21st century. So, if if any of your listeners are like, you know, I kind of want to move more towards a a, a a socially connected world for for myself and for my family and for my kids, um, this is a do-it-yourself explanation of how to do that and leverage the science of applied evolutionary anthropology to that end.
2: Oh, awesome. And then what yeah. are the links for the mental immunity project?
1: Yeah. So the, if you go to Circe and you type in mental immunity and Circe, and you're going to find that project online and see the efforts that myself and, and Andy and his epic group of scientists that are working on the problem right now.
2: All right. Excellent. Oh, David, sweet. thank you so much for coming on. This man. This was so this is such a wonderful episode.
1: Yeah, it, this is, it was fantastic guys. I, as soon as you opened with the WWE <laughs> reference, I was like, this is going to be one of the fun. Like, <laughs> we're going to have fun in this podcast. It's not going to be too stuffy. And I always Absolutely. love those.
2: <laughs> oh, and now, and now I'm also curious, uh, just yeah. before we wrap up, what's the show that you're going to? Which one?
1: Uh, the show. In
2: yeah, the of- WWE. Yeah, the WWE show that you guys are going to is that a pay per view or just okay. like, a live show? Okay. So
1: that was um, the last one we went to was in Indianapolis. I, w- I want to say 2011. Okay. So, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's been a hot minute, but I've got a couple buddies who always keep me um, abreast of what's going on story arc wise. So mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm always I'm one degree separated from. The act, the active day to day of the WWE. Oh, you're talking about um, the the actual uh, show we're going to in yeah. September. So that's not yeah. a WWE show at all.
2: Oh, that, what is it? It's that's li-
1: it's literally a a Viking live Viking fighting event. So, oh wow! So I'm myself and and my group of best friends, our fire team, if you will, we are practitioners of a medieval martial art called SCA. So it's wow. a society of creative anachronism, and mm-hmm. basically you dress up in full plate armor. You have shields, you have rattan weapons, and you just beat it like it's MMA, but it's uh, multiple units and Damn. multiple groups fighting in big battles. Um, wow! Yeah, it's it's super fun, and it's a great exercise of the tribe drive. Yeah, uh, at, at its at its finest with. very few injuries (laughs) wow wait just
2: just so i could be clear and then your friend is training roman reigns for this for what
1: yeah so that's for his particular he has a he's got a sub society uh and that is a viking uh like it's like a medieval martial art but it's Mm -hmm. focused on viking reenactment slash fighting specifically Mm -hmm. and so my buddy kyle potts he is, tr- he's training the group in, in that particular style of fighting so that mm-hmm. when they go out and they play, they can play with as, as good as uh, possible in terms of their martial prowess. Mm-hmm.
2: Okay. Wow. Awesome. Well, very cool. Yeah.
1: It's, it's so much fun. It's, it's a healthy way to exercise the tribe drive. That's for sure.
2: Yeah, yeah, definitely. The controlled yeah. environment. Uh environment. Okay. Right. Thank you. Th- thank you so much again, David, man. Yeah. Again, this was excellent.
0: Take my, care. My man. pleasure.
1: All right, guys. All right. Yeah. Talk to you soon, man. For sure.
0: All right. So everyone, if you'd like to follow us, you can follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook and on Instagram, on Twitter. We're at Seize underscore podcast. Like, subscribe, hit Hit the the bell bell on on YouTube. YouTube. And again, thank you so much for watching and see you next time.